This is Dave Iverson, and welcome to our new podcast series, Getting to a Cure, the Science Behind the Search. In each episode, we'll explore a promising new scientific endeavor aimed at solving the mysteries of Parkinson's disease. And today, we're going to focus on how a genetic mutation known as LERC2 might lead to exciting new discoveries. Until quite recently, we didn't think there was any genetic basis for Parkinson's, but now we know that about 5 to 10% of Parkinson's patients have a genetic connection, with the LERC2 mutation being the most common. It's of particular interest to researchers, not only because of its prevalence, but because LERC2 Parkinson's is, for all practical purposes, indistinguishable from Parkinson's in the general population. This has led scientists to think that unraveling the secrets behind the LERC2 mutation might yield important insights to treating Parkinson's more broadly. The Michael J. Fox Foundation has played a leading role in supporting LERC2 research, an initiative led by Dr. Marco Baptista, the Foundation's Director of Research Programs, and he joins us now. Well, Marco Batista, welcome to this continuing series of conversations where we try to get a better understanding of the science that we hope will eventually lead us to a cure for Parkinson's disease. Yeah, thanks, Dave, for having me. Let's drill down a bit and talk about the particular genetic mutation that I know your research and and your work is particularly involved with, and that's the LERC2 mutation. Tell us something about how common this gene mutation is within the Parkinson's population. So even though the LERC2 mutations are some of the more common mutations that are, are linked to the probability of getting Parkinson's disease, they're still quite rare. The estimate is that around 2% of the Parkinson's population would have LARC2 mutations. However, if you look at different ethnic populations, such as Ashkenazi Jews, or in North African Arab Berbers, or also people of Basque ancestry, you can then see that the prevalence is up to 30 to 40% of those mutations actually being linked to Parkinson's disease. So if, generally speaking, people who have a genetic connection to Parkinson's only represent maybe 5 to 10% of the overall population, LERC2 is the most prevalent. It would maybe represent 2% of the overall Parkinson's population. But in these certain populations that you describe, Ashkenazi Jews and, and the Berber Arab population, are you saying then that about as much as 40% of those populations who have Parkinson's, there is a direct genetic connection? Uh, That's correct. So depending on the ethnic population that you're looking at, the LARC2 mutations could be the direct cause of the Parkinson's disease. And so let's also spend a moment before we talk more about the specific LARC2 mutation and, and what it does and why it might be problematic, about how what having that LERC mutation necessarily means as far as whether or not you definitively will get Parkinson's. Because this varies on the different genetic mutations, right? Some mean that you will definitively get Parkinson's. Some mean that your odds go up a lot. Sometimes your odds only go up a little. If you're carrying the LERC2 mutation, what does that mean in terms of the probability that you might actually get Parkinson's? So with LARC2 mutations, what you have is uh, something called incomplete penetrance. And that means that just because you do have one of the LARC2 mutations doesn't mean that you will be guaranteed in getting Parkinson's disease. What it does mean is that the probability has now gone up that you might get the disease. And one estimate of the probability with getting Parkinson's from a LARC2 mutation is uh, something like 25%. 
again, as we were talking about the different ethnic groups and the, uh, the prevalence of, of the LARC2 mutation causing the disease, there's also a difference in the amount of uh, penetrance depending on the ethnic population. And so for someone who's has the LARC2 mutation, you have to have gotten that from one of your parents. So for starters, someone who has a parent with carrying the LERC2 mutation, you have a 50-50 chance, I guess, of getting that genetic mutation. And then in turn, you have a about a 25% chance of getting Parkinson's. So in a sense, your odds are still somewhat on the small side. It doesn't mean that just because your parent carries a LARC2 mutation that you would necessarily get it, number one. And number two, even if you get it, you wouldn't necessarily get Parkinson's. Uh, exactly. And in fact, with that number of 25% chance, uh, it means that the odds are that you would not develop Parkinson's disease. Uh, the LERC2 mutation, which has been the focus of so much attention, in part because it is the most common form of genetically associated uh, Parkinson's disease, is a gene that is in all of us. Only some of us might have the mutation, but everybody has this gene. So let's talk some about what it actually does and get a better understanding of what it does, and then we'll talk more about maybe what goes awry with someone with the mutation. Sure. So we all have two copies of the LARC2 gene, uh, which is located on our on chromosome 12. You have a copy from your mother, a copy from your father. And the LARC2 gene acts as an instructional manual uh, to make the LARC2 protein, which is a particular class called a, a kinase. And kinase is just uh, is a term which refers to proteins which act as molecular switches to turn other proteins on or off. And with regards to LARC2 function, there's still a lot that we're uh, learning about LARC2, but it is involved in vesicular trafficking, in cytoskeletal remodeling, in mitochondrial function, and in autophagy, which is a term referring to how the cell recycles different components within itself. And that's significant because a number of the things, as I understand that you just mentioned, Marco, we think are tied to how Parkinson's develops generally in the population, right? You mentioned the issue of sort of recycling the kind of waste products or whatever in, in a cell. We think those things happen, generally speaking, in Parkinson's. So is that part of why the LERC2 mutation is so intriguing to researchers? Yeah, there, there are several reasons. That is definitely one, that I think LERC2 is tapping into the biology that is sort of more of the common denominator across everyone who has Parkinson's disease. I think another reason why there's a lot of interest and looking at LARC2 mutations um, is that the clinical manifestation of LARC2 Parkinson's is very similar to the form that most Parkinson's patients have, which are non-genetic. Um, that is, it's late onset and it has all the hallmarks that you would expect. And actually, this is not true of other genes linked to Parkinson's disease. A lot of the other genes are more linked to early onset and don't have all of the same clinical manifestations. So what is our understanding at this point, Marco, of what goes amiss when you have the LERC2 mutation as opposed to just standard garden variety LERC2? What we think goes awry? Is it something that has to do with that signaling process that you were describing that has a, a kind of toxic effect on neurons in the brain? What do we think is going wrong? So we know that mutations in LERC2 are generally causing what's called a gain of function, meaning that it's making... LARC2 hyperactive. And this aberrant hyperactivity 
appears to be linked to cellular death. We recently published in the journal eLife, uh, along with several other pharmaceutical companies and, and some academic groups, a discovery that a subset of proteins, which are termed RABs, and these are proteins that are involved in trafficking cargo inside the cell, we've discovered that they're downregulated by LARC2. And what could be happening is that because of this downregulation of the RABs by an abnormal, overactive LARC2, that it could be causing sort of a traffic jam inside the cell. And this traffic jam could then be causing some downstream effects that eventually are causing the cellular death, uh, which we know is associated with Parkinson's disease. So do we need the LERC2 gene? Do we know that? I mean, would one of the possible solutions here be to just somehow get rid of that gene? We're pretty sure that you do need the gene. It definitely is serving the the normal function of of LARC2. It's definitely serving uh, a function, I think, to maintain the cell's uh, ability to survive. Uh, I'm also not aware of there being a population of people that don't have two copies of functionally working LARC2. And I think that also tells us that you probably do need LARC2 because those populations uh, don't exist. If they're not existing, there's, a, there's probably a reason for it that you do still need some, some functional LARC2. And I think the therapeutic approach in going after LARC2 would be to somehow find that balance where you can lower the kinase activity or lower the levels of LARC2, but not down to 100%. So then let's go into what has happened in terms of trying to figure out a, a fix for the LARC2 mutation. This is the kind of thing that, as I understand it, pharmaceutical companies get excited about because it's the kind of target that they can work with. Tell us something about why that is, Marco, because I'm not sure I fully understand that. What is it about these these kinases in particular that pharmaceutical companies sort of get excited about because they know that they might be able to find the right drug to fix it? Yeah, so, so pharmaceutical companies are always going to be intrigued by human genetic data because that really lays a solid foundation for knowing what is potentially the cause of the disease. And in Parkinson's disease, as we were mentioning before, uh, when we use that term idiopathic, it means we don't really know the cause, and that's the most common form of Parkinson's. So once you have that genetic link, I think what made it really exciting with LARC2 is that you also now have a gene product which is considered by the pharmaceutical industry highly druggable. And what I mean by druggable is that there, there is a history and there is the expertise at the pharmaceutical companies to make drugs to target these classes of, of proteins called kinases. They have that knowledge a lot from their oncology work that they've been doing. So that, that combination of seeing the genetic link of a particular uh, gene such as LARC2 to Parkinson's disease and that the gene is encoding a kinase, which they have the expertise to drug, makes it a very powerful combination. And then when you top it off, that the clinical manifestations of LARC2PD are almost indistinguishable from the most common forms of non-genetic Parkinson's disease, then you have a very strong rationale of why you should be going after LARC2 as a drug target. And how far along are we in that pursuit? How close are we to developing a drug that might be able to fix the LERC2 mutation? So drug discovery is a very long process. And just to put the time frame within, within some context, it was back in 2004 when independent labs uh, were finding that LARC2 mutations were linked to Parkinson's disease. 
we're probably a year or two away from seeing pharmaceutical companies uh, going into a first-in-human study. First-in-human study would be a study where you would be testing the drug for the first time in healthy volunteers, maybe possibly with some mutation carriers, just to test to see if the drug is, is safe and tolerable. Uh, once that's successful, you would then move on to a, a phase two clinical trial where you have a better understanding of the doses that you think are going to be efficacious. You're going to be using more people. That would be a trial that would probably be all exclusively in uh, mutation carriers to test the hypothesis that this abnormal overactive LARC2 kinase activity, if inhibited by a LARC2 kinase inhibitor, will be beneficial to Parkinson's patients. I think getting up to a phase two trial, then we're talking possibly another four to five years. So it's a, it's a slow process, but definitely we're in a very exciting time right now where we might see this new class of drugs, these LARC2 kinase inhibitors, going into people for the first time in the next couple of years. No, it's incredibly exciting, I think. All that said, there have been a few bumps in the road. Some of the early testing of those drugs in, in the preclinical models, as I understand it, have posed some questions, um, particularly about potential problems with how this might affect lungs. Tell us something about what those discoveries, the, the question marks and concerns that those studies have have. Um, put forward, and then what's been done to try to work our way around those very concerns? Sure. So back in 2015, we conducted a preclinical study and published it in Science Translational Medicine, a study that we did with Genentech using two of their company's LARC2 kinase inhibitors. And what we saw was that it induced an abnormal uh, lung phenotype that's characterized by an increase in the size and the number of lamellar bodies. Lamellar bodies in your lungs contain surfactant, and that's needed to keep the surface tension low in the lungs so that they can expand and so you can breathe. So when we published that work, we knew that there was some potential of uh, safety liability with LARC2 kinase inhibitors, specifically affecting the lung and not affecting any other organ uh, in those models. What we then did next was the Michael J. Fox Foundation set up an unprecedented collaboration, again with Genentech, but now bringing in Merck and Pfizer to preclinically test to see if their LARC2 kinase inhibitors would also induce that abnormality. And although we did find that they did, we discovered that the lungs go completely back to normal after withdrawal of the compounds and that it had no consequences on the breathing function. And what this has done, it's allayed concerns about there being safety liabilities of these class of drugs and allowed for a strategy to monitor side effects in the clinic. And was there also not uh, some findings that have to do with dosage? In other words, if you can find the right dosage or a lower dosage of those inhibitors, um, that the lung concern would be lessened? Yeah, uh, exactly. So every drug has a potential of having a side effect. And Everything can be safe and everything can be quite dangerous depending on the doses that you give, the amount that you give. And what we did find was that you could push the doses very high with some of these compounds and still not see any lung abnormalities. So I think there is a potential for a therapeutic window emerging with these LARC2 kinase inhibitors. And as I mentioned before, the goal is not to completely abolish all LARC2 kinase activity. I think the goal is to try to bring down 
that abnormal Lark2Kinase activity, which is predicted to be maybe two to three-fold abnormal in Lark2 mutation carriers, uh, back down to a non-mutated level. You mentioned the work that the Michael J. Fox Foundation has done working through a consortia, working collaboratively with pharmaceutical companies and, of course, various academic researchers in this arena. I know the foundation has also um, taken a role in terms of trying to develop our greater understanding of LERC2 by including uh, people who are LERC2 mutation carriers uh, within various biomarker studies. Say something more, I guess, about the overall foundation approach of this. Is it to try to work every aspect of this, working in consortia, working with pharmaceutical companies? Is the foundation approach then one of um, trying to work at this in a wide variety of avenues to get to that end goal we all want to reach? Yeah, I think we have a very large portfolio, and we definitely are very open to all the different types of strategies to try to accelerate LARC2 research. I I think we also really recognize within the LARC2 field that the chemistry is ahead of the biology. And as I mentioned before, how drug companies really have that expertise in making these drugs against LARC2, that it's not probably the role of the Michael J. Fox Foundation to be further supporting the chemistry work. I think the companies sort of have that. What they don't have and what the field is still lacking is still a better understanding of the basic biology of LARC2, what's normal function, what's its abnormal function, getting at key questions of potential safety liabilities of the compounds that are being developed by the drug companies. And I think if we put our emphasis and our investment in those key challenges that are hurting the field, I think then the rest of the field can then um, learn from that and that that will accelerate their own programs. To what extent does this pursuit in some ways parallel some of what's going on in the cancer field? By that, I mean this great understanding or the greater understanding, as I uh, understand it, in the cancer arena is that we've come to over time to understand that um, cancers are very particular. It's not just that you have breast cancer, it's the specific kind of breast cancer that you have. And so the effort to develop these more precise precision medicine orientations so that you have a treatment approach in cancer that targets a very particular kind of breast cancer. Does that hold in the case of Parkinson's as well? Is that part of what's interesting about this? We hope, of course, that a drug that would fix LARC2 would apply more broadly. But are we also at a point now, Marco, where we're trying to develop very precise and very specific approaches as we understand that Parkinson's has perhaps many variations? Yeah, I think we're in a very exciting time with LARC2. Because in a similar way to the oncology field and the the cancer field, where you can really try to pinpoint and stratify a a population based on the genetic mutations that they have, and then specifically go and target it. I think for LARC2, you have that, but you also have this converging biology, which is showing that a therapeutic might even work outside of that population and work for all Parkinson's patients. The example of the sort of genetic pinpointing that is analogous to what's going on in the cancer field and what has happened in the cancer field is with uh, chronic myelogenous leukemia, CML. And in CML, you also, in a similar way, have a disease that is caused by increased kinase activity. In this case, it's a different type of kinase, but still you have an increased kinase activity. This is where drug companies have 
learned how to make good kinase inhibitors within that um, CML cancer field. And by knowing the population that you're going after, you can really design a better clinical trial to test your hypothesis of why your drug hitting that target should be working. And I, and I think that's what we're getting at with LARC2, with a phase two trial being conducted in LARC2 mutation carriers, where the hypothesis is that there should be an increase of twofold to threefold of increased kinase activity, and being able to test that population to get at the best shot to see if these potential drugs are going to work. But with the LARC2 field, because of this converging biology and because of the, the evidence that's growing, that there are a lot of similarities between LARC2 Parkinson's and the most common form of non-mutated uh, Parkinson's disease, that this can be something that can be generalized to the entire population. And that's very exciting. What do we still have to find out? In other words, is it questions like dosage? We may be good at the chemistry and know how to inhibit these sorts of, of uh, kinase activity that are generated by the LERC2 mutation. But do we know exactly how much? Is it is getting the right dosage? Is that part of the challenge ahead? Is it which part, which will this apply to just LERC2 carriers? Or will, could it be even be more particular? Might it apply just to Ashkenazi Jews or, or whatever? And then how do we know whether or not this will work? Do we have a biomarker that will tell us that this drug is actually... In other words, tell us something about the, the various things we still have to figure out. I think there are three key questions that still need to be fully answered. Um, the, the first being getting at a therapeutic index. And as we were mentioning before, everything can be toxic if you push the doses too high. So where is that sweet spot where you can have a dose of a LARC2 kinase inhibitor that is ameliorating the symptoms or possibly slowing down the, the progression of the disease, but not having any effects on the lungs or not having any other side effects? And, and that's work that we're aggressively uh, doing to try to figure out the proper doses um, that are going to be eventually chosen to go into, uh, into the clinic. Secondly, and as you mentioned, it's very important to be able to, when you conduct a clinical trial, to understand what your readouts are going to be and if they're actually feasible. And having clinically validated ways of measuring important things to demonstrate that your drugs are actually doing what you think they're doing is, is quite important. Um, so, for example, being able to measure LARC2 itself or modified forms of LARC2 and seeing how the drugs that are being given to people are actually altering it is, is quite an important thing that needs to be established. And that's still a gap in the field that we're working, uh, working towards. Uh, finally, we still don't know exactly what the LARC2 protein looks like in its natural form. And proteins are all folded upon each other. And when we say that something's druggable, we mean that also that a protein has, you know, grooves and, and, and crevices that the drugs can bind to. And we don't fully yet understand what, and if I could use the analogy of a key and a keyhole, we don't know exactly what the keyhole looks like for LARC2. So even though we, companies have been developing some very good LARC2 kinase inhibitors to be used as tools for our preclinical work, we'll never know what the best LARC2 kinase inhibitor will be unless we fully understand what the keyhole looks like so we can make the best key. And we've gathered some of the top scientists around the world um, who have, uh, in, in their own fields outside of Parkinson's disease, have been able to solve the, the structure of, of different targets that they've been interested in. 
and we're definitely trying everything we can so that we can try to figure out what the keyhole looks like. So while there's much work still to be done, it also sounds like we're tantalizingly close, Marco, to having some of these these possibilities actually tested in the clinic. And while this process, as we've often, often discussed with drug development, is slow and arduous, we're closer, a lot closer than we once were. And that's, that's reason to be excited, yeah? Yes, I think we're very close. And I think a lot of our conversation has been focused on the research and, and the researchers who are, who are doing that work. But another part of the equation, and equally important, are all the, uh, the people who have Parkinson's and, and how they can be making contributions to the research. And we do have a very important study that's, that's been going on for some time now called the Parkinson's Progression Markers Initiative, or PPMI. And this is our flagship biomarker clinical observational study. And right now we are, we're quite interested in getting people to write out surveys to see if, if they do potentially have uh, genetic mutations of either LARC2 or, or other genes such as GBA. And if so, they possibly could be eligible to be participating in this observational study which in the end I think is really going to help lay the foundation so that clinical trials eventually can be carried out and so that we can actually test the hypothesis to see if a LARC2 kinase inhibitor is actually going to work. The name of this uh, series of which this conversation is, is the first is to look at how we get to a cure by further exploring the science uh, behind that search. So Put in context for us, then, the importance of this particular aspect of, of that scientific quest. What is it that you hope for, Marco, that this particular realm of our scientific endeavor will teach us about Parkinson's disease in general and will help, therefore, get us that much closer to the cure we all desire? I think it is a major stepping stone in being able to fully understand some of these more common mutations, such as uh, the, the LARC2 mutations, in us getting to a spot where we can have greater confidence that we, we can better treat all people who have Parkinson's disease. And although it's still very rare to have these mutations, and although the probability still is low that you would get the disease from these mutations, there's still a lot to learn and a lot that can be generalized um, to the uh, general population who have Parkinson's. Well, Marco Batista, thank you for uh, not only participating in this conversation as we try to explore the, the science uh, behind the search for a cure, uh, but also thank you for the work that you're doing at the foundation and in helping to get us further along the line in our, in our scientific pursuit. Thank you. Oh, thank you. That was Dr. Marco Batista, Director of Research Programs at the Michael J. Fox Foundation. In the months ahead, we'll continue to dig deeply into the latest scientific developments in Parkinson's disease research as part of this new series, Getting to a Cure, the Science Behind the Search. I'm Dave Iverson. This is Michael J. Fox. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Learn more about the Michael J. Fox Foundation's work and how you can help speed a cure at michaeljfox.org.